Well, let's turn our Bibles this morning over to, um, we are in, what are we in? We're in 1 John. There we go. 1 John, we're going to be in chapter chapter 2. If, uh, I don't have too much time to give a recap here because we've been, it's been a while since we've been in 1 John, but if we were to walk as a visiting pastor, walk in, the Apostle John, at the time that he wrote this letter. John wrote five books of the Bible. He was inspired to write five books of the Bible. First, second, and third John, the Gospel of John, and the book of Revelation. If when he wrote this, he was like walked in, he would be to all of us living here, living here, our life expectancy at that point in time would have been 45 years was the average lifespan. But John was about 92 when he penned down these words. So if we would have walked John in, we would all go trip out on that guy. It'd be like walking someone in right now that's like 140, 150. I think we might pay attention. John, one that had a very unique relationship with Jesus. In his gospel, he talks about the love of God as it relates to him five separate times. In these letters, he's going to talk about the love of God 26 times. It says that when they carry John into the churches in his latter years, in the area of Ephesus, he couldn't say much. He was an old dude. But he would say life-changing words. He would look at all of you and he'd say, children, love one another. Historians that wrote in that era talked about this man by the name of John that would be called into the church, church after church, and he would do the same thing. Brethren, children, love. Just love one another. And so as we go through this amazing first letter, recipients of the letter he had in mind were those in Asia Minor, the churches in Ephesus and Thyatira and Smyrna, Sardis, Philadelphia, Laodicea, the same churches that Jesus had letters sent to through John in the book of Revelation, the first part, John himself, most scholars believe, has that audience in mind. And there were four reasons, as you go through this first letter, why he is pinning these words down. Number one, in verse four, he tells us that he wrote this letter that our joy might be full or be made complete. Number two, in chapter two, we'll be there in just a moment. In verse one, it tells us that he wrote this letter so that we would not sin. Verse 26 of chapter two, he wrote this letter as a warning about false teachers. And we'll talk more about that as we go through the letter. In chapter five, verse 13, it tells us that he wrote this letter 
that we might believe on the name of the Son of God and that we might know we have eternal life. And if you're a note taker and you like to summarize things so you can remember them, chapters 1 and 2, it all focuses on God, but chapters 1 and 2, the focus is on the light of God. Chapters 3 and 4 focus on the love of God, and then chapter 5 focuses on the life of God. And John starts off the letter, and I quote in verse 1 of chapter 1, he's like, hey, that which is from the beginning, that which we have heard, that which we have seen with our eyes, that which we have looked upon, and our hands have handled. John's like, just so you know, I'm not pinning down, you know, things that were just kind of secondhand or thirdhand information. I'm pinning down things that, that myself, along with the disciples, personally and intimately experienced by living with Jesus for three and a half years. From the time that he called us until the time that his father called him home and he ascended. He describes Jesus as that which is from the beginning. The word of life in verse 1. In chapter 2, he'll talk about him as the, or, uh, the, the in verse 2, the eternal life that was with the Father. And then it says, and that life was manifest. He's like, I, I, I'm talking about Jesus, the eternal God, and he puts him in the reference of eternal God. He speaks about his preexistence in the sense that you know, before the material world, God has always been. He's that God. All the statements that he is going to make as he opens this letter up is like, I'm talking to you about God. He's always been God. He is God and he forever will be God. That's who was manifest to us in the person of Jesus Christ. And then he would say in verse 5, this is important because it leads into where we're going this morning, that God is light, and in him is no darkness at all. And John frequently talks about God as light in his writings. Um, in verses one or chapter 1 of his gospel, uh, verses 4 and 5, it says, In him, speaking of Jesus, was life, and the life was the light of men, and the light shines, it shines in darkness, and darkness did not comprehend it. In John chapter 3, quoting the words of Jesus, he takes and goes, think about this. Jesus said, and this is condemnation, that light, speaking of himself, has come into the world, but men have loved darkness rather than light because their deeds were evil. And then when John is pinning down, you know, the book of Revelation as he's there on the Isle of Patmos in chapter 21, he has this vision of the temple, and he's like, But I saw the temple, and in it, for the Lord God Almighty and the Lamb are its temple. And the city had no need of the sun or of the moon to shine in it, for the glory of God illuminated it. The Lamb is its light. And the nations of those who are saved shall walk in its light. So light is a single term that captures the essence of God's nature. It represents his holiness. It represents his purity. And, 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 and you know, when we think about it, uh, what is it Peter would say in 1 Peter chapter 2, 9, that, that when we were saved, God called us out of darkness into his marvelous 
light. We are called children of light in 1 Thessalonians 5, verse 5. Those who do wrong hate light in John chapter 3, as we referenced earlier. Now in chapter 2, John's going to continue discussing, you know, the light of God. The, 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 the talking about God and this whole idea of, of God being light. And he's going he's gonna to tie it into our fellowship with God. And then he's going to tie that into how our fellowship with this God, who has always been this God that is pure and holy, that that fellowship can be affected by sin. And he's going to talk about what God has done about that. And so in verse 1 of chapter 2, My little children, these things I write to you so that you, you may not sin. And if anyone sins... We have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. And he himself is the propitiation for our sins. And not just for our sins only, but for the sins of the whole world. John has a lot to say in this letter, this first letter about sin. Chapter 1, you can look over at chapter 1 again. I'm going to read a few verses and we're going to... We're going to springboard off of these verses into what he's saying in chapter 2. Again, in chapter 1, verse 5, God is light and in him is no darkness at all. If we say that we have fellowship with him and we walk in darkness, we lie and we do not practice the truth. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship one with, with one another. In the blood of Jesus Christ His Son cleanses us from all sin. If we say that we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Now, if we say that we haven't sinned, we make Him a liar and His word is is not in us. For you note takers, and you've never really went through a a Bible study on sin, I'm going to give you a couple of just really simple things. Number one, in the Greek. Why do we refer to the Greek? New Testament written in Greek. The Greek is a a more rich language. The Greek word for sin is armatia. It was a a term that, that, that came to to be commonplace around those that used a bow and an arrow around any form of archery. They had a lot of contests in those days. They'd put up a hoop, they would have people stand back and they would try and shoot. They would put up targets with a bullseye, they would stand back and, 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 and shoot arrows towards the hoop or towards the target. And if they missed the target, if they missed what they were aiming for, they called that armatia. That is a description of what sin is. It's falling short of God's standards. The Bible also talks about sin as a trespass, as a transgression. It's stepping over the line. It's stepping across God's boundaries. It's stepping beyond the limits prescribed by God. And sin is also described in the Bible as disobedience. 
It is disobeying God's law. Now, throughout John's gospel, we have the, the if we statements. We, we, we saw there in verses 6 and 7, if we say, if we say that we have fellowship with him and we walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. But if we, if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship one with another and the blood of Jesus Christ is cleansing us from all sin. Listen, God is light and in him is no darkness at all. If we are walking in fellowship with God, Walking the light is a reference to walking in fellowship with God. If we are walking in fellowship with God, if we're walking in the light, our lives are going to back up what our lips are saying. But if we are living in sin, walking in darkness, then our lives will contradict what our lips are saying. But then again in verse 9, if we confess our sins, that carries the idea that we do sin and that we must confess our sins. The idea is that we should be confessing our sins. Every sinner, every Christian sins and should be confessing our sins to God. Now in verse 10, if we say, if we say, no, 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 I, I, I've not sinned. We make him a liar and his word is not in us. Now, it's human nature to deny our sin. We, we don't like to face the reality of our sin. We're quick to shift blame on someone else. That goes all the way back to our parents, Adam and Eve in the garden. Remember just the blame shifting that went on with that, the woman from the woman, it was the serpent. It's just, it's human nature to shift blame. But if we, we do that to the point where we would say, look at we have not sinned, or I don't sin. John says, I want you to consider a couple of things. Number one, we make God a liar. How's that so? Well, God in his word in Romans 3, 23, says all have sinned and fall short of, a of the glory of God. God's verdict on all of humanity is that all have sinned. And when a person denies that he has sinned, he is in essence saying, God, you're a liar. That doesn't relate to me. Secondly, in verse 8, if you say you haven't sinned, you're deceiving yourself which means we become a liar. We're not only calling God a liar, we are becoming a liar. To say that the truth is not in us means that God's word then has not affected our belief or affected our conduct. God's word says, you are born with a sinful nature and you sin. That's what God says. When I say, no, I don't. I'm not a sinner. I am deceiving myself. I am proving to myself and anyone else, that I am a liar and I am saying that God is a liar. And so, that then shows me that His Word, the living, powerful Word of God that is able to pierce beyond my flesh and my marrow, 
and is a discerner of my thoughts and the intents of my heart, as the writer of Hebrews is saying in chapter 4, that, that, that God's living, powerful word of God has not affected my belief or my conduct. And so you can imagine now going into chapter 2. It took us three or four weeks to teach all of that before. That's a, a summary. And, and now, picture Agent John speaking with great affection. My little children. The, these things I write to you. These things refer to what John has been saying about sin. That we need to admit that we are sinners that do still sin. That not admitting that we sin, we are making ourselves and God out to be liars and we are proving that his word is not affecting our belief or our, our, or how we be behave. These things also refer to John talking about how we need to confess our sins. So, in light of all of that, my little children, these things I'm writing to you so that you, you may not sin. It sounds to me like John may have been worried that some Christians will think sin is to just be accepted as an inevitable part of the normal Christian life or others. Some might think God is going to forgive me so it's no big deal if I keep sinning because... He will forgive me. I sin. He forgives me. But John is writing these things so that we won't regard sin as an inevitable part of the Christian's life and we won't presume upon God's forgiving us and see sin as no big deal or great, we have a remedy for sin, so why not continue sinning? When I was younger... A guy at my church was working at an oil refinery. And he says, hey, Lance, there's, there's some night work you can pick up. And it pays really well. And I know you got a job, but I could, I could, I could get you in. I said, sure, I'd love to work in the evenings at an oil refinery. That'd be great. And I didn't understand how big this refinery was. I remember it was like a city. But I, I went there, and I'll never forget the first night of training they were talking about. There was a certain area we'd be working in. And they said, basically, in this particular area, there's a lot of toxic fumes. And, and you're going to have to be really careful. And we carried these gauges around that would let us know if there was any fumes. And, and, and per chance, I'll never forget, he said, per chance you, you come down with any kind of illness or you're affected by any kind of these fumes in this part of the factory, we have this, this clinic over here. It's, it, you, you just go. We, it's, it's set up in the refinery. For, for anybody that would have any kind of medical issues. And I remember thinking, this isn't good. This isn't good at all. Now, I want you just to think through that analogy. Do you think that that refinery put that clinic there so that people would be emboldened to be reckless, to just go, oh, we've got that. So I can just do whatever I want. No, it was there to help someone. It was there in case, in case somebody happened to fall ill because of what that factory produced. 
It wasn't there to encourage people to run after that, which would adversely affect them. No, it was there for those that might be adversely affected, be honest about that, and then run for medical aid. It's been said that Christians are saved from sin, not to sin. We will sin and do sin, but we ought to be people who sin less now after we are saved than before we were saved. The trajectory of our lives should be towards holiness and away from sin. That is why he uses the word if. If anyone sins, young or old, male or female, Spiritually mature, spiritually immature. Pastors and priests. Deacons, elders. If anyone sins is a statement that is unqualified as to the sin. He doesn't divide sins up into categories such as big sins and little sins or mortal sins, which Catholic theology would bring into play and say, well, those are worthy of eternal damnation, but then you have the venial sins, which are forgivable. He doesn't speak about sins God will forgive and those he doesn't forgive. The wages of sin is death. That's what the Bible says. There are consequences to sin. Can I hear an amen? amen. If anyone sins. Can I hear another amen if you're a sinner? Amen. Oh. If you still sin, say amen. amen. That was a little more quiet around the room. Notice that? That's how tough that is. Mom's sitting next to my wife, man. Come on. Anyone says he doesn't sin. John is saying because we are sinners that are capable of sinning, watch out that you don't sin. But if you do, we have an advocate with the Father Jesus Christ, the righteous. So because we sin, we need our sin forgiven. Why is it that we can have our sins forgiven? John says because we have an advocate. The word advocate in the Greek is parakletos. One who is called alongside to help in time of need. John uses the word Parakletos four times in his Gospels. John 14, 16 through 18. And I will pray, speaking Jesus here, I will pray the Father and he will give you another helper. Parakletos. That he may abide with you forever. The spirit of truth in the world cannot receive because it neither sees him nor knows him. But you know him for he dwells with you and will be in you. I'm not going to leave you as orphans. I'm going to come to you. John 14, 26. These things I have spoken to you while being present with you. But the helper, again, the parakletos, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all things that I've said to you. John 15, 26. But the helper, parakletos, comes, whom I shall send to you from the Father, the Spirit of truth, who proceeds from the Father he will testify of me. 
John 16, 7. Nevertheless, I tell you the truth. It is to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the helper, the parakletos, will not come to you. But if I depart, I will send him. And when he has come, he will convict the world of sin and of righteousness and of judgment. In his gospel, his focus is on the Holy Spirit's coming alongside believers to indwell them, to teach them, to testify of Jesus. In other words, producing the character of Christ and to help, to help us. In his gospels, uh, his gospel, the Paracletus is more of, of a helper. Here, Paracletus isn't translated as a helper, it's translated as an advocate because it means not only to come alongside and help, but it also refers to one who lends his voice in defense of another. One who speaks up on behalf of another. An advocate. You can tell as you go through John's writings that John has a passion for wanting believers to understand and embrace the assistance and the help that God provides to those who walk in fellowship with him. As believers, I break this down and I realize, I've got two advocates. We have an advocate in our life indwelling us in the person of the Holy Spirit, speaking on behalf of God, convicting us of sin. And number two, we have an advocate in heaven, Jesus Christ, the Son of God, who speaks to God on our behalf. As the writer of Hebrews says in Hebrews chapter 7, verse 25, as our high priest there, an advocate, Jesus always lives to make intercession for us. The writer of Hebrews goes to great lengths to show that Jesus alone is qualified to be our advocate, using that phrase, our high priest. Why does he use that phrase, high priest? He's writing to Jewish believers, Hebrews, who are walking away from their faith. And they're walking back to what they've been saved from. For them, it was Judaism, the practice of Judaism. It was a work-based thing. And so the writer goes to great lengths to show in the book of Hebrews the supremacy of Jesus. He's greater than Moses. He's greater than the law. And then he, by, by contrast, he's like, you understand the role of a high priest, the go-between. He, he stands between you and God. Well, Jesus is, and he's going to say, a better high priest. And he's going to give the, the, just the, the logic, think through this. Man, our high priest, they're sinners. They've got to go and offer a sacrifice on their behalf before they go and represent you to God. <clears throat> they're limited in their scope of serving, both in term and in lifespan. And he just goes through and he's like, look at the limitations of our earthly high priest. And then he stands up who Jesus is as our heavenly high priest. Hebrews chapter 7 is a classic, verse 26, in helping us understand the role of an advocate that Jesus is as our high priest. Verse 26, it says, for such a high priest was fitting for us. In other words, he was suited for every need we will ever have. He's holy, 
harmless. I want you to think about when we, when we, when we started our pre-glow this morning, if you're not aware, on the first Sunday of the month, we start a half an hour before the service. We just gather, I read some scripture, we pray, we worship the Lord, we, we praise Him. We just thank Him, praise Him, and, and, and whatnot. But I am... Um, I challenge people, I says, I want you to spend some time right now. We're just going to thank the Lord for who he is. And, and, and I said that because I know a lot of times when we pray, we're not praying as we, we ought. Scriptures talk a lot about that. And part of that is because we have a skewed view, a wrong view of God. He's this, 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 boss in the sky that I've got to appease. He's this, this entity up there, this he's God, he's deity, whatnot, but I've got to clean up my act and get my, my, my act right before I even approach him. You ever wonder why people talk so formal in their prayer to God? Why? You think God needs to hear like King James kind of language over just the way you talk? That's a joke. But you understand, why do we get so formal? Because we think he is wanting this formal kind of relationship. No, no, no. Why is it that we're all caught up in our own rules and regulations? Because we think of God in terms of this legal relationship. No, he's our heavenly father. It's a loving relationship. Amen? So we're talking about his son whom we go through. He's our advocate. How you see him greatly affects how you approach him. He's holy. He's harmless. He's undefiled. He's separate from sinners. He's sinless. He's, he's become higher than the heavens. In other words, he's supreme over all. Who does not need daily as those priests offer up sacrifices for his own sins and then for the people. For this he did once and for all when he offered up himself. Hmm. Those earthly priests offered an animal sacrifice that I came and paid for. But my advocate in heaven, he offered himself. He dealt with my sin. It was his blood that was shed. That's who I'm going to. In 28, the law appoints as high priest men who have weaknesses, but the word of the oath which came after the law appoints the Son, capital S, who has been perfected, what? Forever. He's eternal. Because Jesus is God's Son, the sinless, righteous one that offered up himself, paid my penalty and paid your penalty on the cross, when he died as our substitute, he alone is qualified to be our advocate. No pope, no bishop, no priest, no pastor, none of those believed to be made into sainthood, no elder, no deacon, no Sunday school teacher, no parent is qualified to be our advocate. We have but one advocate, Jesus Christ the righteous. Amen. He alone is my advocate because he alone paid the price for my sin. 
Romans 8, 33 and 34, who will bring a charge against God's elect? God is the one who justifies. Who is the one who condemns? Christ Jesus is he who died. Yes, rather, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who is also interceding for us. The son's contact with the father is unbroken. His intercession is never ending. Day by day, hour by hour, year by year, millennium by millennium, Jesus intercedes for us. So Paul says, well, who is he who condemns? Not Jesus, not the advocate that you, you come to. In John chapter 3, speaking of, about himself, he says, God didn't send me into the world to condemn the world, but through me the world might be saved. Jesus is in the business of saving and forgiving. Jesus is in the business of saving and forgiving. Amen. Oh, now you sound like people that have been saved and are being forgiven. That's a wonderful thing. Who is he who condemns, Paul says? Not Jesus. It is Christ who died. He's not condemning you. He gave his life for you. He gave his life for our sins. In his death on the cross, he bore the condemnation that we deserved. He's not condemning us. And it was Christ that was raised from the dead, Paul says. His resurrection proves his victory over sin and over its supreme penalty, which is death. His death paid the price for our sins. And his resurrection gave absolute proof that the price was paid. And then it says... Paul says, like, it's Christ who is at the right hand of God. Hebrews 10, 12, it says, Every priest stands daily ministering and offering time after time the same sacrifice, which can never take away sins. But he, speaking of Jesus, having offered one sacrifice for sins for all time, speaking of his sacrifice, sat down at the right hand of God. Of the Father. Why did he sit down? Because the work of redemption was complete. It was complete. In the tabernacle, there were no chairs because the priest atoning work was never finished. But when Jesus, by himself, bore our sins, he sat down. The work of atonement was complete. And so lastly, Paul says he's at the right hand of God and is also making intercession for us. His work of atonement is complete, but his continuing ministry of interceding on our behalf, well, it continues on. In Hebrews chapter 4, verses 14 and 15, it says, Seeing then that we have a high priest who has passed through the heavens... Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession. For we don't have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but was in all points tempted as we are, yet without sin. 
Though Jesus was sinless, he had a human body, of course, and mind and emotions. Like every other baby, he thought like a baby. He had the needs of a baby like every other toddler. He toddled. And he needed help as he wobbled. <laughs> but he was sinless. At every stage of his life, I know this is hard to get our minds around. In his teenage years, he was sinless. He was a sinless junior higher. The only one to ever walk on the planet. He experienced a full human experience, yet without sin. And the idea, the writer of Hebrews wants us to understand, the one who was among us went up into heaven, through the heavens, and is seated as our advocate. He knows you. He was one of you. He can sympathize. What I feel, what you feel, he feels. We've talked about the illustration of sympathetic vibration. For you musicians, you know about this. If you're ever around the orchestra up here and they're tuning things up, if you had a, a piano on one side of the platform here, and you had another piano over here on this side of the platform over here, and someone went over here and hit a C chord, that piano over there with no one on it would begin to vibrate the C chord. They hit a D chord. That over here, that, that piano with no one behind it would begin to vibrate the D chord. It's sympathetic vibration. It's a phenomenon that happens between like instruments. And so Jesus came from heaven to take a body on just like ours, a body that is able to sympathetically feel and gently, lovingly, graciously respond to what we feel. He took that body to heaven. It's his, his priestly body. And, 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 and when a, a chord is struck in our instrument, in our body, it resonates in his. He responds. There is no note of our human experience that he doesn't see and feel. It resonates with him. It's mind-boggling enough to know that Jesus knows us. He knows me by name. He knows you by name. And he knows the number of hairs on our head. I'm going to leave that alone. The Bible just wants us to know. He knows us personally and intimately. He knows our thoughts. He knows our risings and our sitting downs. To know me is one thing. But to feel me. How personal is that? I remember sitting before a, a doctor one time and and I, 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 was, I think I was just one on the list that day. And I don't want to take away from any of my doctors out there, nurses or whatnot. But this guy was checking the boxes. And I was there because I was concerned about some health issues. And I remember he was just kind of going through the box. He never looked at me or anything. And, and then finally, finally, he asked me, Lance, what do you do? And I says, what part of life are you talking about? Yeah, for a hobby. I said, I surf. And he finally, he looked up. He surfed. We had something in common. And he goes, well, what else do you do? And I says, I'm a pastor of a church. And then it was kind of the take down the glasses moment. 
and he began to really open up to who I was. Don't you want a doctor that feels you? Yeah, you want doctors that feel you? I do. What a quality to have in an advocate. This should convince all believers that when we approach Jesus, there is no need to do so fearfully, anxiously, worriedly. Speaking about Christians who sin, it was Luther who said, if someone errs and sins, he should not add the sin of despair. After sin, the devil always alarms the heart and makes us tremble. For he hurls a person in, into sin in order that he may finally force him into disparity. Again, an advocate, one who lends his voice in defense of another, that's Jesus. One who speaks up on behalf of another. I read one joke where a man said, not sure how many lawyers there are in heaven, but I know there is at least one, Jesus, our advocate. If you're a lawyer, I'm sorry. <laughs> Revelation 12, it talks about, verse 10, it talks about Satan being the accuser of the brethren. And he's allowed access to the throne. He's a liar, he's a desert deceiver, he's a murderer, and he's an accuser. Man, when I sin, when you sin, he is just like all over that. Father, do you see what this blow at Lance did again? And the father would look at me in that courtroom setting and go, Lance? Yeah. Well, there's a wage. To sin, you understand that? Like, yeah. It's consequences, yeah. But if I may, and just about then, someone's going to interrupt me, and it's my advocate. Ho, ho, ho. You are not to speak to the Father. Speak to me. Come through me. There's one mediator between God and man, and that's the Son, Christ Jesus. Speak to me. I'm your advocate. I died. I took your sin upon me. I'm your advocate. Talk to me. Jesus. I, I blew it. I sinned. Well, I'm faithful and just to forgive you and cleanse you from all unrighteousness. Father, I may approach the bench. I paid for this young man. He put his faith in me. He's one of ours. I've adopted him. He's grafted into our family. He's an heir of yours. He's a joint heir of mine. We're familia. And because of what I did on that cross, he's forgiven. I paid for his sins, past, present, and future. But I need him, as you said, Father, to agree with you when he does sin and confess that. And he's done that. And the Father would slam the gra gravel down. Forgiven. Next. And you would be right behind me. 
Thank you. One agreement in the room wasn't, wasn't bad. The latter part of verse 2, John focuses on why it is that Jesus can function as our advocate and forgive our sins. And he himself is the propitiation, the appeasement, if you know takers, for our sins and not for ours only, but also the whole world. Isaiah 59.1, God says, Behold, the Lord's hand is not shortened that it cannot save, nor is his ear heavy that it cannot hear, but your iniquities separated you from your God. Our sin needs to be dealt with because we're sinners and we sin. In the Old Testament, God initiated a way. The priest was to make atonement through an animal sacrifice, Exodus chapter 29, Leviticus 16. There's the whole day of atonement where God would deal with the sin of the nation, where the high priest would make a sacrifice for himself before he would go into the Holy of Holies, where the Ark of the Covenant was. The Ark of the Covenant had Aaron's rod that budded. It had the jar of manna. It had the Ten Commandments. And on top of the Ark of the Covenant was the mercy seat. And on the Day of Atonement, they would make a sacrifice for themselves, then they would make a sacrifice on behalf of the nation. They would take the blood, the priest would, on the Day of Atonement, Yom Kippur, they would go in to the Holy of Holies and on behalf of the nation's sin, they would sprinkle blood on the mercy seat. And, and scholars and rabbis down through the ages said it was such a beautiful picture of atonement. When you think about atonement, think about a couple of things, but, but think about God looking at our sin. What reveals our sin? The law reveals our sin. Paul would say, I wouldn't know that I am covetous unless... The law said, don't covet. And so the law, which God would be looking at, that which reveals our sin, that's the purpose of it. God would look at our sin and the proof, as he would look at his word, the two tablets, if you will, like, oh, it's revealing the sin of my people. And God had a righteous anger towards that which separates him from his crowning act of creation, you and I. That, two things need to happen. Atonement, at one minute. The relationship needs to be restored. God said, without the shedding of blood, there's no forgiveness of sin. This needs to happen. Atonement is one thing that happens. The second thing is appeasement. It settles that righteous anger of God against not us, but against that which separates him from us. Of course, when we look at Jesus, in the New Covenant, the New Testament, he is the ultimate sacrifice. That's why John, his cousin, when he came to be baptized by him, he's like, behold the Lamb of God who came to take away our sins. Our only hope from the just penalty of our sin is if someone who is not himself under the penalty of sin forgives us as our substitute. 
We cannot atone for our sin or forgive ourselves for our sins. If our sins are to be forgiven, someone who is without sin must pay the price for our sin. So God provided His Son as a sacrifice to pay for our sins. Thus, when John says Jesus is the propitiation for our sins, he means that sin has been atoned. Its penalty has been removed. Fellowship with God is restored. And God's wrath is likewise propitiated. It is turned away. And not for ours only. He gave himself as his is the propitiation for our sins and not for us only, but also for the whole world, for all of humanity. God looks at all of humanity and says, it's all savable. <laughs> they all need to come to him on his terms and accept their son as their personal Lord and Savior. And I sent him to that world. 1 Timothy 2.4, God desires that all men be saved and come to the knowledge of the truth. 2 Peter 3.9, the Lord is not slack concerning his promise, as some count slackness, but is long-suffering towards us, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. That priestly prayer, Jesus' prayer, when he prayed in John 17 to the Father, he says, you know, in verse 21, I do not pray for these alone. I don't pray for just the disciples. But I also pray for those who will believe in me through their word. That they all may be one as you, Father, are in me and I in you. That they also may be one in us that the world they believe that you sent me. Why do you press that point home, Lance? Because there are people who have a wrong view of God and a wrong view of the world and a wrong view of themselves. And the enemy has convinced them that they're unworthy, they're unacceptable, that they have to do something in order to earn access to God. Jesus is the access. Jesus became your access and my access, the world's access, when he died on the cross for the whole world. Amen? Let's stand. you to do something this week. I want you to find time with the Lord, and I want it to be unique. I want, you to, I want you to talk to him about this. I'm not going to tell you what to do as far as finding a time. I want you to talk to him and say, Lord, show me a time where I could spend five minutes with you, uninterrupted, all the devices turned off, put away. No one else but me and you in a car, in a room, somewhere. I want you to do this. Every day this week till next Sunday.
And I want you just to talk to him about, God, do I have the right view of you? I want you to start there. Do I have the right view of you? Do I have the right view of, of the Holy Spirit? Do I have the right view of your son? And listen. Listen. And then, Lord, what about myself? Do I just mean you? I want, what, what are you doing? You're talking about your relationship with him. When me and Lori have 99% of the time, it's perfect. But that 1%, it's not. Joke. When we, when we have a tune-up on our marriage, it's two people that need to get on the same page. Right? I need to understand her in ways that maybe I'm not. She needs to understand me in ways that maybe she doesn't. Hear me, this is really important. When we do that with God, you do understand He's God and He created you. You do understand that. You understand He 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 does He deserve to lead, by the way? He's the potter, we're the clay. clay. Okay. Love the honesty of clay in this room. When we talk to him, he has a heart. He feels you. He has a heart and a will towards you and for you. Like he really does. He really does. Want to give me your hand, Lance? Do I trust him? Really, when I come to him, do I trust him? Do I trust him with more than five minutes? Do I trust him with an hour? How about a day? Now think through this. If Christians were just doing this simple exercise, if you really were and I really were going to Jesus, our advocate, was kind and loving in everything we just studied, compassionate and merciful and gracious and all forgiving. And I go to him and, and I'm going to gain his heart and you're going to gain his heart and, and I'm going to gain his will and you're going to gain his will. And it's a relationship. When I talk to God, our Father, who are, it's a relationship. Don't you think we would be further united if you're doing that and I'm doing that? Because growing in a relationship with Jesus is heading somewhere. His direction. Is, that, is it simple? Is it, you guys tracking with me? Okay. That's, could be some deep waters here. Okay, question. Why do we have so many denominations that differ? Don't you think that would, if we all did this this week, don't you think we'd be further united in his purpose and his cause next week? Now you're talking unity. No one's talking that out there. I wonder what that would do with Christians that are of different political parties. Huh. It's amazing what happens when the word of God grabs a hold of us 
what we believe and what we, our conduct, what we practice. We will be united. Unless something, we just have a different view of God. Different view of ourself. And we've relegated prayer to something other than a warm, affectionate time with a God who offers me relationship. Now it's obligatory. And now I'm daydreaming because there's no life and it's not love. It's duty. If we can get there as the body of Christ, he is going to do amazing things with you and me and with us. Amen? Amen. Father, help us. As we go through this exercise with you and develop a more fervent, passionate prayer life, thus relationship with you. We love you. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen and amen. God bless you guys. Remember, we got the